0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Victor Davis Hanson Show, The Classicist. I'm Jack Fowler, the host, the star and namesake is Victor Davis Hanson. He is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. You go to VictorHanson.com, his website, which you should do, sign up for the exclusive service, only five bucks a month, 50 bucks for the whole year. You can find a link to The Dying Citizen, uh, which is on the New York Times bestseller list. And as a uh uh, we, we've we talked about in previous podcasts how it was being difficult to find the book on Amazon. But right now, as we're recording, it is in stock. You will get it right away. So you'll find the link for that on VictorHanson.com. You'll also find a link for Victor's uh, weekly email newsletter, The Week in Review. If you're on Facebook, go check out VDH's Morning Cup. If you're on Twitter, at VDHanson. Victor, we have a lot to talk about Uh, for this episode of The Classicist. Not a lot of time. We're going to come out of the box talking about Rome and Byzantium, but right after this important message. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients.
1: As you practice each skill, the
0: muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. We're back with the Victor Davis Hansen show, the classicist recording today on October 20th, Wednesday. I'm Jack Fowler. Victor, you wrote a piece for American Greatness. Do encourage our listeners to go to American Greatness, to read the, read the whole thing. It's called, it's titled, Is America Becoming Rome versus Byzantium? And I, I bow to you, my friend, a great classicist. Why do you have this uh, dynamic, this ancient dynamic to describe the state of America well, today?
1: there's all this talk that we're in a civil war, that people are self-selecting and geography is a force multiplier now as it was in the Civil War. We don't have a Mason-Dixon line, but we do have a red state interior and a bi-coastal elite that is ideologically at odds with one another. Everybody understands that. I don't buy into the idea there's going to be a Civil War, obviously. But I do understand there's tensions rising because... Donald Trump was controversial, but more important, there is no Democratic Party now. There's not a liberal movement anymore. It is, there's not progressive. These are Jacobins that have hijacked that party. And they're sort of like what happened to the Labor Party with Michael Foote. I mean, these are socialists. They alienate people and they wanna destroy the country as we knew it, okay. But I don't think they're gonna fight. First of all, I don't think they would win and they don't have the majority of the people. But more importantly, I think there's going to be uh, two radical reinterpretations of America and that once one interpretation will be viable and one won't. And that's kind of what happened in the latter third century when Diocletian said, you know what, this empire is too big and we're going to divide it up. And then in 313, Constantine said, you know what, I'm going to move the capital from Rome to where... There's stability, and there's greater wealth, and there's greater continuity. And I will found this great city on the old side of Byzantium, Constantinople, the city, the polis of Constantine. And then over from the third to the lat fifth, the next 200 years, there was a drift. And the drift was the Western Empire did not have defensible borders or could not defend them on the Rhine and Danube. Its former colonialized peoples in Gaul, in Belgium, and parts on the border with Germany, in North Africa, in Spain, and Portugal, in Britain, they began to rebel, or they felt the central government was rotten at the core and could not create the same forces of a Roman melting pot. Kiwis Romanus sum, I am a Roman citizen, did not apply anymore. Latin started to drop... Certain case endings, conjugations were simplified, and we started to see the emergence very early of of what would become the modern Romance languages. Okay, in the East, they doubled down. They said, no, we are Romani, Romanoi, but we're Greek-speaking, and we are going to stay intact under the aegis of Hellenism, the Greek language, the traditions of classical Greece, the Greek, what would become what would become the Greek Orthodox Church, but a different, more rigid form of Christianity, and we are going to promote scientific inquiry, et cetera, but we're going to concentrate on defense. The walls of Constantinople were the largest in the ancient world. Technologically, they, had, they produced Greek fire. They built the greatest cathedral, the largest dome in the world until the 17th century completion, the final completion of the Vatican. And uh, Hagia Sophia, they re- recalibrated all of Roman law under Justinian. And in the 520s and 30s, under the twins of Narcissus, the eunuch general and Belisarius, his favorite for a while, they reclaimed most of North Africa, saving excepting Egypt, and they took a lot of southern Italy. And there was, for a time, this Byzantine model proved successful when Rome was in chaos, the West was mm-hmm. gone, and it lasted for a thousand years until Black Tuesday of uh, May 29th, 14. 14- 53. So one point is that what we're seeing in the United States now is some of the red states are saying we don't need to be globalist, we don't need to adopt different constitutions, we don't need to get rid of the Electoral College or the nine person Supreme Court or bring in extra states. We don't believe there's three genders. We don't believe that Christianity is anti-enlightenment. And they're doubling down on their traditions and customs and constitutional legacies. And even though they're not the cosmopolitan Roman, Western Roman type of citizen with windows on one side of the EU, on the other side to the uh, dynamic juggernauts in Korea and Japan and China... So we're self-selecting, but we're not at war. And they never went to war, Rome and the West, not until you know, the fourth crusade when the Frankish kingdoms and Germanic kingdoms started to appear. So I don't think we're going to go to war, but I do think there's gonna be two different paradigms of what America is. And blue state America, I don't think is gonna be viable. By that I mean most liberals, when they have to move, they go to Tennessee, they don't go to Chicago. Right, Great city of Chicago. Remember, that was a city that could do things. Unlike New York, we were told in the 60s under Mayor Daley, that can, right. that's a city that can't do things. Portland's a mess. I've got to go to Seattle this week. I'm dreading. Last time I went there, I watched in my hotel room, people spun Brody's in the intersection, shooting guns in the air with impunity. I don't want to go there. I don't want to go to Minneapolis. I don't want to go to any of these places. I don't want to go to San Francisco. I just got back yesterday from Los Angeles. I don't like walking around Los Angeles. I did that all morning. Just don't like it anymore. I don't like the chaos that I see in that city. That blue state model is unsustainable. It's unsustainable at the border. It's unsustainable economically. It's unsustainable energy-wise. It's unsustainable racially-wise. It's unsustainably criminally justice-wise. And the red state is not, and I think people are self-selecting. And so I think one model is going to erode and what happens when it erodes, I don't know, but the red states are becoming pop Nobody says in Tennessee or Florida Texas. Oh, my gosh. Here. This right. is so boring and things just don't work. I'm moving right. up there to Minneapolis or Seattle. I got to get back to my city by the bay. I left my heart in San Francisco. Right. And I'm talking about naturally beautiful cities like right. Seattle and Portland, much more attractive than many of the red state plate. They're naturally beautiful and they were well run and they were avant-garde and they were visionary and now they're third world messes.
0: Yeah, I was down in New York City today, Victor, earlier, and I was just glad that there were so many people out on the street smoking pot because it kind of dampened the smell of
1: urine everywhere. I mean, it's really. I mean, I was in Eeyore's cabinet every day there in New York two weeks ago. I mean, I've never seen that city until I was 18 when I first went there. And I thought Times Square looked like it was a junkyard and it's starting to reappear that way. There's junk and garbage on the ground. There's a lot of people who come up to you and mumble something as homeless. There's a. It seemed like every third business is shut down, and whether it comes back, it depends on whether they're going to get another Giuliani-like figure or Bloomberg. Yeah, and I don't. I don't know if they will, but uh, it doesn't seem like it's a safe, clean place to be. Is what I'm trying to say.
0: Well, Victor, kind of in the same ballpark of uh, topics, you wrote a piece for your website, and this is part of the ex- exclusive content, but we'll talk about this from time to time. But I do want to encourage people to you know, go read it, become a member. The piece is titled The Ironies of the Rioting Youth of 2020. And I want to just read a quick paragraph here. But you could talk more about the piece and like what are the ironies? But anyway, before you do that, here's what you wrote. On one hand, those toppling statues are canceling their own on the internet, pose as vicious malice against the hardcore shock troops of the revolution. Their brand is vile profanity, taunts to police, firebombs, and spray paint. But on the other hand, the demonstrators and looters proved fragile and mostly bluff. Apparently, the protesters were especially cognizant that their 20s were nothing like what they believed to have been the salad days of their parents and grandparents, who did not incur much debt, bought affordable homes, had families, and were able to save money. That has got to stick in the psychological craw of many of these punks. Why'd you
1: write this piece and what are the ironies? Well, the ironies are that they got what they wanted, didn't they? So we were told that if we got rid of, uh, you know, 3.5% unemployment, we got rid of the melting pot, we got rid of the wall, we got rid of cooperation with Mexico and Central American governments, we got rid of, at least for a while, that refugees had to apply from their countries rather than just walk across the country, got rid of catch and release, got rid of the idea that fracking and horizontal drilling were some kind of terrible plots to destroy the planet and we just pumped, you know, eleven million plus barrels. And if we got rid of all of Donald Trump and his awful Queen's accent and orange skin and fake yellow hair, then Joe Biden from Scranton would we're all gonna be united and we would all be happy and we would all be sort of JFK Democrats, or maybe at worst, Bill Clinton. And that didn't happen did it and they had their chance they took over and in the space of nine months they showed us that they were jacobin socialists and they wanted control and they were mean-spirited and they went out to destroy their enemies and they unleashed the media they had everything in their arsenal they had the house they had the senate they had the presidency they had all the courts except the Supreme Court, and that's even iffy at times. They had the media. They had the university. They had K-12. through They had the corporate boardroom. They had Hollywood. They had entertainment in general and professional sports. And what did they do? They took, as we said, they took paradise, and they turned it into purgatory. Yeah. And that's what they did. And it's nobody to blame. And they said, Trump did it. Trump did it. That's Finally, that voice is so hoarse and and right whiny and shallow Trump did it he did Afghanistan he he gave us inflation he did all this no you did you did because you got your wish you never really had a chance nobody was in their right mind would have ever turned the country over to you hard leftist and the plague and the shutdown and the recession self-induced and George Floyd and the riots and the 102 million in ballots January, all of that chaos, you said no serious crisis should ever go to race and you didn't waste right? it. And you got this, uh, mer- you know, this whatever you want to call him, a puppet, a simulacrum, Joe Biden, and you pulled the strings and you got this is the AOC's dream. It's her dream and our nightmare.
0: Yeah. Victor, you know I love your sarcasm, and it comes through in the writing sometimes. So, you, first of all, you, you, in this piece, you you talk about, and I think this is a great term, and let's you elaborate on it. about It's about elite overproduction and what are the consequences of that. But I just want to read this little sentence here. As you described some of these elite, you call them the woke but godless, the arrogant but ignorant, the violent but physically unimpressive, the strutting but fragile, the degreed but poorly educated, the Broke but acquisitive, the ambitious but stalled. It's a great. Uh, they, they picturing got, the guy in
1: his in his footy pajamas. Yeah, uh, we yeah, talked about before. But, pajama boy or life. Boy. Boy. They got they wanted all of that. That was what the rioting was for. Remember when Joe Biden was elected, that thing stopped like you wouldn't believe. It was almost like guy from Central Rioting. The, the Bureau of Central Rioting wrote a memo, you know, to the riot police and said. Make everybody stop. There was no need anymore for chaos. It achieved its goal. And then all of a sudden we had no riots, maybe minor ones here and there in crazy Portland. So that was ironic. These people got what they wanted, And it was very ironic, wasn't it, that, there's, that uh, there was employment for them uh, at 3.5% and things were going good. But these people, elite overproduction is a, a major problem in the Middle East. And, that, and what I mean by that is, it's not my term. It's very commonly used by sociologists. What it means is that you educate people at government expense and their own expense. And you know, the society and the individual invest a lot of money and time in this so-called cattle brand called a BA or an MA or an MS or a BS or whatever, And the education proves to be warped. It proves to be ideological. It's not grounded in the same meritocratic standards of the past. And you turn out people that really are not very well-educated, but have a sense that given the amount of money they spent, you know, it's like buying a clunker. You spend all that money, a lemon, and then you think that you got to get mad at somebody. Are they mad at themselves? Maybe. Are they mad at society? Yes. Are they mad at the right somehow, yes. Are they mad at the left, yes. But you're talking about a prolonged adolescent that can't afford to get married, cannot have children, can't afford a family, cannot afford to buy a home. And in that vast abyss, all of these forces, these centrifugal forces start to enter, transgenderism, childness. It's better AOC says not to have child. Why would you bring them into a polluted world? You know, give a AOC, you know, four hundred thousand. She's almost there, and a nice house. And believe me, she'll have kids in the nicest house and the nicest clothes of anybody. So a lot of this anger is the fact that they were sold a bill of goods by the university. I'm not saying they're not culpable. Any idiot that borrows ninety thousand dollars to get a, you know, BA from you know UC, I don't know any campus in sociology deserves it, but the university's hand in glove with the federal government enabled this this con. And so most of the anger in this country of the youth are people that are ignorant because their educations were not competitive and they're arrogant, i.e. I am articulate. I have a big vocabulary. I am analytical. I see how the world really works, unlike that buffoon on a tractor in Indiana, unlike that guy who's Slave, a slave to his checkout counter at 7:11, on like that silly fool who's an Uber driver. I am aware because I am God Almighty of the Enlightenment. And you know what? People are not impressed. They're not impressed. Yeah. When they say, I graduated from college, most people say, that means you were A, brainwashed, <laughs> you have no moral compass, and C, you're probably obnoxious, and you're a very marginal utility. Do you know how to weld? Do you know how to take apart an engine? Do you know how to build a bridge? Can you work all day side by side, a new immigrant, and uh, you know, go up on a skyscraper in New York and balance a girder? No, you can't do anything. So what good are you? And I think they understand that. And there's a a lot of this anger self-loathing. Yeah, it is. You've mentioned not impressed. Uh, Victor,
0: let's switch here to talk about two political things. Let me just take them on one at a time. One is the January 6th commission, which obviously keeps happening. And and I'm not saying it's uh, irrelevant, but my gut is that most Americans are not impressed, or not cognizant, or, or don't care about this. Either honestly don't care about it, as opposed to dishonestly, or just because they are consumed by thoughts of uh, skyrocketing inflation and, and you know just ma- madness happening, country going in the wrong direction. If it's going so radically in the wrong direction, how can folks be focusing on this? saying it's wrong to focus on it. Reporters do both sides, but there's some news came out today. You know, Steve Bannon is going to be held in contempt. Anyway, Victor, it's all one big blob here, but we haven't talked about this January 6th commission in a while. Do you have any thoughts you uh, want to share about?
1: Well, remember why they're focusing on it, because after January 6th, they had... Uh, an argument, and they had a narrative, and they said that a bunch of white supremacists stormed the sacred capital with a plan of an arms insurrection to take control of the government and have a coup and prevent Joe Biden, who was elected, from assuming power. And that was their high watermark. And that's probably what led to the demise of the the Republican, you know, in Georgia, the Republican control of the Senate, no doubt. And that's when Trump was kicked off and they went after parlay, and Parley whatever you want to call it. And they went after uh, everybody and they de-platformed, canceled out and Trump persona non grata. Taliban can tweet, not Donald Trump. Okay, but there was a shelf life on that. And the shelf life thought, we thought, okay, Each day you're going to dribble out more incriminating information, but just the opposite happens. Suddenly, no, 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 no. 20,000 hours of video. No, you can't hear them. Policeman's name who shot Ashley. But no, no, no. We always release the name, don't we, when a policeman shoots an unarmed suspect. This right. person wasn't even in custody. Right. Okay. So no, 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 no. That's not going to happen. Armed insurrection. Do we have people actually inside the Capitol? They took guns or they used them? No. They might've been people in the periphery that had a weapon, but not in the Capitol. I don't think. Is there anybody charged? We thought, I thought, wow, these people are going to get these huge conspiracy racketeering, interstate, the fraud, oh, nothing, nothing. And so, all we're left with is four out of five Trump supporters of people who died were Trump supporters. The whole deification of the tragic death of Brian Sicknick was based on a non-truth. He was not killed by a fire extinguisher or bear spray. He had a tragic stroke. He was, And he was the only one that was a non-Trump supporter who died. Ashley Babbitt was shot in the neck and she was unarmed committing either a serious misdemeanor or a moderate felony by breaking a window or illegally parading. Okay, that's what we were left with. And that little that what we were left with is getting less and less and less. So they now look at the border and they look at Afghanistan and they look at inflation and they look at the gas prices and they look at the empty shelves and they look at the supply chain and they look at the COVID mandate and what did they say? They say, oh, my God, somebody spare us. And when you say somebody spare us, there's always Adam Schiff, right. the one trick <laughs> pony of little talent. And he raises his hand and says, well, the Russian collusion thing didn't work. The impeachments that we entered, the engineer didn't work, but I got another life draft. It's called the January 6th hearing. And so, and we'll just go get who's the guy that everybody hates? Steve Bannon. He probably planned it. He's a conspiracy. He's an alt-right. Let's get him in here. And who else can we get in this theater, this circus? Oh, wow. All of these Republicans, there's 10 of them. Who will join us of the Republican congressmen who voted to impeach Trump or believe that our narrative? So let's put Liz Cheney in here. And so meanwhile, the news elsewhere, ticks, ticks, ticks. There's no evidence of an armed insurrection. Everybody knows when you put 25,000 troops on the streets of Washington, that was a political act in a way that they had demonized. The very people who did it had demonized Donald Trump for considering it. And meanwhile, we've got this other guy out in the shadows called John Durham, and he's like a – I guess he's a slow – (laughs) Slow motion mowing machine. And he's slowly grinding up this story and he's getting, you know, he's got an indictment and he's basically, if you look at his trajectory, it is Hillary Clinton through the DNC, the Perkins Coie law firm, Fusion GPS and Christopher Steele concocted a radical lie, and then called all of their contacts, whether it was Bruce Orr in the DOJ or Loretta Lynch or, you know, James Comey and Andrew McCabe in the FBI or members of the State Department, and they seeded this lie, and they thought it would take out Donald Trump. And it got so bad that even when the DNC's computer was quote-unquote hacked, they called in their buddies, CrowdStrike, and then James Comey said, well... Billy wants CrowdStrike hit their cronies to investigate. I guess I won't investigate. And then they said, oh, we can't quite say it was hacked, but it was kind of sort of maybe hacked by the Russians. But you know what? We have the computer and don't get near it, but we have no evidence that the Russians did it. And then you've got the WikiLeaks people saying, Assange saying it was not hacked by the Russians. So what I'm getting at, Jack, is that all of these narratives blow up because they're all based on lies. And this January 6th, if it was a sober and judicious investigation of domestic unrest, and it was truly bipartisan, and it examined 120 days of looting and arcing and rioting and murdering and killing 28 dead, 2 billion up uh, in theft and destruction of property, 14,000 arrested and no enforcement of the major city, if it would investigated that in the single day of January 6th, yeah, it would have credibility, but it has none because it's so asymmetrical and it's designed to take attention off this disastrous news of the yeah. Biden presidency. And to tell you the truth, this slow motion grinder called John Durham.
0: Victor, I look. I've just seen a clip, an outtake. I don't even think this thing is aired yet, but we mentioned Christopher Steele, the uh, the, the architect of this Russian collusion document. And he still seems to be getting media love. It's quite interesting. (laughs) I just don't. Well, I do get it because as we've talked about before, you know, there's a double standard. I don't think there's a double standard. I think there's a standard for you and me. And they have their own standard. And if it seems hypocritical, too bad. That's the way uh, they get to operate by separate rules for truth. And uh, you know what he
1: reminds me of? You know, when you go to these receptions and you see people, say, having gin and tonics And there's a bunch of limes on the counter, and they don't have enough limes, and people squeeze them. Yes. So people are so different. They'll go up to an old one and squeeze it, and then they'll find another one that's been squeezed three times and squeeze it again. He's that (laughs) lemon. He's been squeezed so much to provide some juice, and there's nothing there. And they're so desperate, they take that old dry lime and they say, You know what? I don't care if he told a British court, that he has no evidence and no notes when he was being sued. I don't care that there was never a consulate, Russian consulate in Florida. I don't care that there was no evidence for the pee tapes. I don't care whether a Russian who was working in Washington probably fabricated most of this. I don't care even the pathological liar Michael Cohen, you cannot prove that he was in Russia. I don't care about any of this. He's Christopher Steele, and he did us a lot of good. He sabotaged and derailed the Trump administration for 22 months. Right. He had the Dream Team, the All-Stars, the Hunter Killer legal team. He, without Christopher Steele, we wouldn't have had that. That led, as soon as that thing collapsed, then we had the impeachment. So he did a lot of good things for us. And so let's not yeah. call him a liar. He did yeoman service. And that's where they are with him. And he's got a British accent. And Roger Kimball wrote a brilliant article, you know, comparing him to the new PC James Bond. Oh, so for who? Steele's the name. Christopher <laughs> Steele. And, you know, shaken, not stirred. Ha, ha, ha. He's the American... You know, it's the idea that there's these suave debonair agents right. in Britain where the guy hadn't been to Russia in, what, 20 years? He didn't know anything. He used I read the whole dossier very carefully, those scare capitals, scare quotes, and all the little fancy pseudo formatting. It was just a total fantasy. And the, think of all the people who peddled that, you know. The well, still being peddled.
0: I mean, uh, we're, we're going to move, we're gonna move on, but yeah, well, Stephanopoulos was the uh, the outtake. I saw Do you, so do you really, do you still think those P tapes are, are for real are out there? <laughs> this is insane. All right. Well, anyway, speaking of insane. And the last thing we have time for is on the classicist. We do talk about things, California and uh, Victor, this seems vindictive petty, bizarre, among which is typical the things Gavin Newsom does, but <laughs> issued this ban for small engines. So you want to mow your grass, you want to use your chainsaw, you got a weed whacker, you got a blower. You know, those are going to be outlawed in the state of California, unless I misunderstand. Is that
1: right? And, yes. And- I mean, well, new ones will be in that. There'll be a whole market like, remember Cuban 1956 Chevys that are still... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Streets of Havana. Well, that's what will happen. There'll be a whole industry of how to keep your steel chainsaw or your trimmer lawnmower working. But there's two points here, I think. And it reminds me in a weird way of this vaccination mandate. When I went to New York two weeks ago, your beloved city, Jack, I went to a lot of restaurants and went with you once. I noticed something. Uh, Whereas a lot of the employers were people of color. Almost all the people I went to were white or Asian inside the restaurant. Right. And then it dawned on me that when you show a vaccination, and that's required to step foot in a restaurant, it's kind of like a, a medical Jim Crow. I mean, you can argue whatever the reason, whether it's scientific or not, or it's it's helpful. But the fact of the matter is, when you have communities that have Way overrepresented in under or no vaxxed people, you know, they don't just have one shot, no vax, and you're telling them they can't come into a restaurant. Then the demography of the restaurant changes, and that, in under our definition of proportional representation and disparate impact, remember the left said there was something called disparate impact. Right, and that meant that if you have a police force. And it's 7% black, and you say, you know what, there was not enough black officers that passed the test, or we're mostly a white count. It doesn't matter, there right. should be 12%. Right. We weren't and, trying. It was, yes. it, it, you it was, apply that doctrine to restaurants and you should, right. sit at the left, and say, we don't care whether it's vaccination or not. We want that restaurant to represent who we are. It has to look like America. So it turns out when it's convenient that the left, they're racialist. The same thing is true of these 90% of the landscaping industry is run right. by hardworking first generation and second generation Latinos, Mexican mm-hmm. American largely. And I know these guys, they have 20 businesses in Selma, and they're master mechanics of chainsaws and mowers and trimmers and, you know, automatic shears and limb loppers and all that stuff. And that's how they make, they're fabulous landscapers. They're not just maintenance people. They're very imaginative. They'll come in and say, you know what, I'll pull out this tree and plant you know, a little walkway here. So they're landscapers. They may not have a degree from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, but they are landscapers. And what you're doing to that community and that industry is saying, you know what, you're going to have to have about a thousand b- batteries in your pickup. <laughs> so when you get that little, you know, electrical, yeah. and it's going to go, boom, and then you're going to be on that job. And we don't really care about you. We have yeah. no concern. The final thing is, remember about how California, indeed America in general, works now. When it can't address the existential problem, it always focuses on the misdemeanor. I, I used a column, I use the term the Bloomberg effect. Remember when you guys couldn't get the snow out of New York during Bloomberg <laughs> and you started talking about supersized cokes and global warming? Right. He, he wouldn't get the snowplows out. Right? right. And that's Look. what Gavin Newsom does. You can have the air in the San Joaquin Valley blanketed with smoke from part of the 60 million trees that went up that he didn't, he never harvested. You can take your life into your hand when you go from six to four lanes on the decrepit old 99 near Tulare, California, to Delano. You can look at San Luis Reservoir; it looks like a pond that's stagnant because. During bountiful years, you didn't have the storage space and you let the water go out to the ocean. And indeed, you still did during this year. You can look at all of these existential... You can go down to San Francisco and say, Governor Newsom, there's people fornicating, defecating, urinating all over the street. They're pitting people. They're attacking people. They just hit a girl in Santa Monica. Why won't you address that? Or you were mayor, Governor Newsom. I can't drive to San Francisco because every time I do, they break my windshield or there's, they've shut down 17 Walgreens. These are problems. Or Governor Newsom, the Port of Los Angeles is in your state. Have you seen it? It's a total FF mess. Right. People are not even working. It's not open 24 hours. There are ships out there to handle it. No, I think I would rather target the Latino community and those uh, – blowers and mowers, because that's where we have to save the planet. And that's how the progressive mind works. It always goes after the misdemeanor and virtue signals, and it never deals with the existential problem. And you know that the progressive mind says to itself, I don't like charter schools. I'm for teacher's union. But they never do. The one thing that would that would really make a difference. And that is put your kids in the public schools, go to PTA meetings, go to public school board meetings, give input, tutor your kids' school, integrate with the other. They'll never, ever do that. So they always do the symbolic, the iconic, the worthless, the useless. And that's sort of what gets to an existential question, Jack. It's not just a question of, of, you know, we... Right weed loppers in California right. you know, or air, you know blowers. It's more of a question of what is behind the entire lunatic progressive mood? Is it some kind of psychological dysfunction where people have certain innate fears or prejudices or biases and they want to be with people that they feel comfortable with, i.e wealthy white people? And they're ashamed of it, and they're guilty about it. So they project this this omnipresent, all-knowing, 360, 24-7 virtue presence all over and try to disrupt everybody else's life to show you that they are angelic um, on racial yeah. relations uh, because their personal life is not. I, I, you're being too nice. You're being too nice. <laughs> I, I've
0: said it before. I think it is this depraved, down deep, or maybe not so down deep thrill at uh, telling other people what to do, even if it makes them grovel, it ru- It harms their lives. There's just a sick thrill that comes with that. And uh, I think the people that, okay. the, that have the means of, of making those orders are, are I always.
1: I think there's two columns I've written in my 25 years that got me in the most trouble. I mean, hate mail. I mean, I did a radio show in KQED. Hate. I gave a talk in San Francisco. I thought a guy was going to attack me. One was if you believe in affordable housing and egalitarianism and these poor people that are marginalized in the Bay Area, they have no housing. They, they have to drive all the way from Salinas and sleep in a Winnebago to clean the floors at Google. OK, if you take. Palo Alto up to Crystal Springs Reservoir on 280, you've got a 50-mile corridor that has what? A, a super highway could easily have mass transit. It goes all the way to Half Boone Bay, Pacifica. It's uninhabited. And why not? You really, for high-density housing, why not build light rail, expand 280, and build, you know, right? thousands of apartment buildings to let the other live there where they work. When I wrote that, all these people from Woodside and Portola Valley had horses and polo teams, and they actually said that to me. And they called in when I was on. They hated it. They got so angry that you would ever suggest that. And the other one that was almost as bad as when I said, right during the so-called cages at the border in Trump's first year, I said, let's just solve this problem. There are right now about a million Dorms in the United States. I think 50,000 in California Mm -hmm. alone. And the school is out of session. Mm -hmm. And this university has resources. It has legal teams there for the summer in the Mm -hmm. law schools. They have these university wonderful med centers with ER rooms. They've got students at summer schools that are ideal leftist progressive mentors. They've got the whole thing. And best of all, they have empty dorms. Why don't you let the people who are crossing illegally come and stay at Stanford and Berkeley and Caltech and USC and UCLA and, and have the progressive community flock to their assistance. Right. And it was funny. The emails that people wrote me were not what you'd expect. Well, Victor, that two things. So that reminds me. They were not what they expect. What did they write? What? What What did they write Jack? At least eight or nine of them. Did well, they say that's impractical or you're being mean? Yes, a few of them. said you're a racist. Well, don't know. What uh, did a they few say? of them. A few of them yeah. said, you understand how hard it would be to clean and disinfect <laughs> and, and make it. You know, we pay a lot of money for Johnny to go to Stanford. And you can imagine right. how would we put him in that room after those people have been there? I thought that was so funny because they were the people objecting to cages. And this what? is being no cages at Stanford, believe me.
0: You know, similarly, I I reached out and we we only have two minutes. left. I just got to tell you this. When when there was some event, I think it was the hurricane, uh, not Katrina, another one, but I wrote to the head of the bishops of the United States Catholic Conference, all left wingers, right? And uh, we have all these empty convents. There are no more nuns, empty seminaries because there's no more priests. You own them. Put your money where your mouth is, Your Excellency, and let's let's use these facilities for the, the poor, right? Wouldn't you? Nah, I probably said go to hell under his breath, but it's easy to call out our friends or enemies on the left for their, their hypocrisy here. Look, Victor, I got to say one, one other thing quickly, because then we got to go. I did want to let you know we talked about on The Traditionalist, one of the other podcasts we do, by the way, The Cultural List with, with Sammy Wink, encourage people to listen. There was a new poll out. Today by the McLaughlin's and you mentioned Hispanics before. And Biden's disapproval among Hispanics in America is now 48%. And opinion of Biden's ability to lead has gotten so bad that 65% of Hispanics are worried about the future of America with Joe Biden as president. Now I know we were just talking about Gavin Newsom, but you know, they're of the same milk. So we've talked about Hispanics before and they're seemingly veering away from the Democratic Party. And, and I think maybe in a soon to come I, I episode, ha- we should talk about that more.
1: Yeah. Very quickly, in a minute, I think what's happening is if you talk to people and I have Mexican-American people in my own family, Right. if you right. talk to them, two things come up until now, until the last three or four years, they were focused on the border. They had relatives there. They wanted basically illegal immigration. Right Now, and then second, they would always say that they were very uneasy about the white liberal nasal voice. He's going to tell everybody what to do. They had a coalition with them, the Gavin Newsom types. That's why people always say, why did the Hispanics... Not like Gavin Newsom. Well, because he was the epitome of that. I am going to tell you what to do and I'm going to wear jeans and act like I'm one of you. But he was a phony and he was condescending and he was arrogant. And the Hispanic community picked that right up. So they didn't have a reservoir of goodwill toward the elite AOC Bernie Sanders left. But that was disguised. Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker left because of the border. And now they are the middle class and they're in government, teaching, et cetera. And that border represents to them what it used to represent to the now gone middle class whites of California who were not racist. They just said, we don't have the money. We're not wealthy. We have social services that's going to cost high taxes. It's going to impact our schools. And now the Mexican-American community is saying, at least 44% of it is. That's true. And number two, they're saying, don't tell me what to do. I'm an independent, successful person. I came from Mexico. I know Mexico. You don't know what Mexico's like. Mexico does not like indigenous people. That's why I came from Oaxaca. Mexico is corrupt. Mexico doesn't work. I can wave a Mexican flag and I can act like I love Mexico, but I'm not going back to Mexico, nor am I going to recreate it here. And I don't want to recreate it here. And you want to use me to recreate it here. And I'm not going to leave as a peasant from one country and come back and be a peasant in the second one. So they yeah. have an innate reservoir of, of anger at that elite, white, educated, bicoastal coastal busybody, quote, unquote, Karen-type figure. And once you take the border out of the equation, and it is out of the equation now because It is wide open and it's no longer let people come from Mexico illegally because I got a cousin down there. Now it's let that's two million people from the whole world swarm my town. Right. So I think this is going to accelerate because once the Hispanic community starts to legitimize, it's okay to say you're not going to vote for a left wing Democrat. Then it's going to start to snowball.
0: Well, as they say in Latin, Victor or um, Well, that is all the time we have left, except well, I'll recommend uh, our listeners. Again, check out VictorHanson.com. Do subscribe. There are thousands of subscribers now. A lot of original content. You can't read it unless you subscribe, and the rate is very affordable. Stick your toe in the water. Five bucks. Test it out. A lot of, lot of content, Victor posts at VictorHanson.com every day, every month. We thank our listeners who... No matter what platform you're on, thank you. But for those who listen on iTunes, uh, thank you. Please consider leaving a review, five stars. Uh, Victor deserves more than that, but you can give five. So please do that. And if you would like to leave a comment, do. We read them. And here's one from the other day. It's titled Food for the Brain, and it's by Mike in Cuse. So I'm assuming maybe he's from Syracuse. But anyway. He writes, at age 59, listening to Victor Davis Hanson on his podcast or any other format brings me back to my favorite history class with the greatest teacher I ever had. I look forward to each episode. I am now in the middle of Victor's new book, The Dying Citizen, and I am amazed at the breadth of knowledge and insight of ancient historic political events and how they are illuminating as to where our present-day social and political contentions may lead us. A must read. M. Roche, thanks, Mike and Thanks, all of our listeners. Thank you, Victor, for another greatly illuminating episode of Victor Davis Hansen Show. We will be back soon with another
1: episode of The Classicist. Thanks for listening. So long, folks. And thanks, everybody, for listening. I'll see you next time.